Hello, and welcome to The Real, the podcast for culture and entertainment media. I'm your host, Mark Olson. On today's episode... Taron Edgerton, who plays Elton John in the movie Rocket Man. It was an incredible opportunity. I loved the mode of storytelling, the style of it. I just felt that there's something of my personality that would lend itself to portraying him and what I knew of him. To have this dual experience of playing an icon and probably one of the 10 most recognizable people in the world, but to also become his friend. I mean, you know, his kids, his kids now wait up for me when I go over to their house, you know, and they feel very relaxed around me. And, you know, I went on holiday with them in the summer and threw his sons around in the pool. You know, it's just, it's been a really weird feeling to have both the depicting of him and creating the movie about his life, but to also become part of his life, which I really do feel like I have. That's coming up. But first, I'm here with one of our television critics, Lorraine Ali. Lorraine, thanks so much for being here. Sure. Thanks for having me. And now I think some of our listeners might have seen some of the stories that have come out recently about this brewing conflict between Gabrielle Union and NBC's America's Got Talent. Can you kind of get us up to speed on this? What's going on here? Well, the background on this is that she left the show and it was reported that she was fired. She came back at NBC and said it had been a hostile work environment in terms of how she was treated as a woman, how she was treated as a black woman. NBC reportedly did not work with her on this, but rather kind of buried it. And they have a history of doing this if we're looking at Matt Lauer, if we're looking at how they've kind of sided with the men who have been accused of treating women unfairly in the workplace. So it became kind of a thing on Twitter. It became people defending her. um, And now there's been talks back and forth with NBC. But it is a thing, and it is something that kind of gets to a larger problem in television and film, what women are exposed to behind the scenes. I have been struck, as I've been sort of getting up to speed on the story, by the fact that it has to do with both what the show that we see, like what the final product is, but then also what it takes to get that made, the sort of the production and the workplace environment that Gabriel Union you know, seems to have had issues with the fact that one of the producers on the show, Simon Cowell, is a smoker, and then so he smokes indoors a lot, which obviously is not something you should be doing in the state of California. And then there were issues specifically with her hair. Apparently it was often deemed too black for what they thought was sort of the, quote, mainstream audience that the show is going for. And so is it new to hear about these kind of issues coming up like this, or is it is what's new here is that it's becoming public? I don't think it's new. I mean, we've seen these kind of issues come up, and, you know, with the whole Me Too movement and Time's Up, looking at these things and saying, look, enough's enough. Women have been, you know, treated this way behind the scenes in Hollywood and television for way too long. It is the norm. I think what's different here is that it's got some traction and that it came up fairly quickly. It wasn't years later. Um, And also, Simon Cowell is a really powerful man. He's created all these shows. He's got a lot of sway in television. And for her to be speaking out against him really could have been the end of her career, but instead she's got a ton of support. And I think that's the difference. And then from that, NBC has had to react. What has the response been? I mean, other celebrities and people online have been supporting her? Yes, her own husband, Dwayne Wade, but 
also Patricia Arquette, Ariana Grande. I mean, that's just a, a small fraction of the people that spoke out for her. And as a matter of fact, Howard Stern, who was a former judge on the show, spoke out in her favor saying, yeah, it's a boys club. And so did Sharon Osbourne, also a former judge. And, you know, one of the things that both of them had brought up is that the male judges on the show tend to be older and they tend to stay for a lot longer. And the females seem to be younger and switched out quite often. That dynamic is really not well-balanced. What seems to be happening now, as we're recording this, this week, Gabrielle Union posted online that she had had a long meeting with NBC. There's an ongoing conversation around this. Do you have some sense of like what's going to happen next, what the possible outcome might be? I think NBC is going to have to publicly come out with some kind of not just statement, but something actionable that shows they're actually taking this seriously, given their track record and given the public outcry about this. Now, on the flip side of this is Simon Cowell, who it looks like this is really starting to hone in on him. How NBC is going to deal with that publicly is going to be really interesting to watch because it's this powerhouse versus, you know, this issue that's come up that's plaguing them. How are they going to do that? And what is that going to look like, you know, in in the court of public opinion? Well, I'm sure that this is the story we're going to continue to hear more about and that we'll be following along as things develop. Lorraine, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. And now, it's time for Glenn Whip's Awards Minute. So the Oscars are nine weeks away. Maybe for you, doesn't sound like it's that far in the future, but for this town, people are panicking because the Oscars are two weeks earlier this year than normal. And it means that right now, everyone needs to make a good impression. So anything right now is important, including, say, the Gotham Awards, which is like the first awards show of the season. So the winners don't really mean that much in terms of overlap with the Film Academy, but the winners mean something because they get their pictures taken, they get to give speeches. Marriage Story, one big Adam Driver gave a very charming speech. He won lead actor and people laughed at and, and applauded and marriage story now. You know, it's it's in the news for a day. Aquafina won the lead actress Gotham Award Prize and she's on the bubble for her touching performance in the farewell. Any kinds of impressions are important this time of year. Golden Globe nominations will be announced on Monday. SAG Awards nominations will be announced on Wednesday. And both of those slates of nominations are crucial for studios as they try to convince people to watch their movies over the long break. So right now we're in that, you know, waving of hands look at me, look at me, look at my movie, period. The month of January is just going to be insane in terms of one award show after another leading up to the Oscars on February the 9th. Thank you, Glenn. And I'm joined today by Taryn Edgerton, who plays Elton John in the movie Rocket Man, directed by Dexter Fletcher. Taryn, thank you so much for being here today. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. And now, even before 
Rocketman came up, you already kind of had a relationship with the music of Elton John. You actually auditioned for drama school with one of his songs. I mean, I'm sure I'm not alone in feeling like the presence of his music has always kind of been there, but I do. it has weirdly felt like the cosmos has been bringing us together for some time. Like a lot of people, you know, was introduced to his music quite young and connected with it in quite an acute sort of way. But then when I was 17, I chose to do your song as part of the audition process for drama school. So yeah, I did your song for the first and I think the second round of auditioning for RADA, which was the drama school that I went to in London. Also, Elton had a sort of a cameo appearance in your movie Kingsman. He did, he was in the sequel to Kingsman, a sort of audacious supporting turn. And also, I was in an animated film about three or four years ago called Sing that I play a gorilla in. And all of the characters in that film, all of the animals put on a concert at the end of the movie and each character sings a a number in its entirety. And the song that I sang at the end of the movie was I'm Still Standing. So there have been these kind of strange encounters that have led to this moment of portraying him in his life. So when producer Matthew Vaughn sort of approached you about first playing Elton in the movie, did it seem to you like, oh, this makes sense? I mean, I don't know. I mean, you know, that's not an idea that was easy to process because of the enormity of it and the responsibility of, you know, of playing somebody who's so renowned and well-known. But I felt very excited at the prospect. One, it was an incredible opportunity. Two, I loved the mode of storytelling, the style of it. And three, I just felt that there's something of my personality that would lend itself to portraying him and what I knew of him. And so it was a very, very exciting prospect, yeah. And now tell me about your first conversation with Elton about the movie. I mean, you'd already met him at that point. Yes. But what was it like when you talked specifically about the movie? He has always been, in the first instance, incredibly encouraging and really instilled a lot of self-belief in me because he just seems to believe in me as a performer and an artist. But also the thing that was really, really cool about the first conversations I had with him was how totally up for it being very candid, very warts and all. That was always one of the parts of it that really, really appealed to me. The fact that we were going to show him at his lowest ebb, we were going to make his addiction a part of the story. We We were going to celebrate his sexuality in a way that wasn't putting box office before art. The thing that mostly struck me about him in our early conversations was just how up for, for him seeing himself portrayed in a very, you know, warts and all way. I mean, it is remarkable. I mean, you can imagine a lot of people wanting a more cleaned up version yeah. of themselves. And if anything, my impression is Elton pushed for it to be sort of like darker yeah. and tougher and more Absolutely. honest. I think philanthropy is a big part of who he is. And I think he's aware of the responsibility of telling a story that's you know, that deals with uh, recovery and deals with sexuality, you know, to try and skirt around those things would feel like a disservice, one, to him, but also his story and his legacy, I think. And he really opened himself up to you in the sense of you read his diaries, at that point, some unpublished memoirs. Yes. What What did you feel you got from all that? It's that's a really that was a really invaluable insight. Reading his diaries, you know, they're, they're kind of they're very very brief passages, but they're daily entries from you know. I read the week of the troubadour, you know, in his handwriting, and it's a real strange feeling. You know, it's like the closest you get to a time machine, you know, and, and getting a sense of his perspective on those things and how he felt. And the really lovely thing about all of that is to see because he would always tell me. I remember early on he was always telling me how shy he was as a young man and you know 
it took me a long time to see that in him. He is, he's intensely shy. Reading those diaries, I could really feel that. I could really feel the fact that he hadn't yet to become the gregarious, peacocking performer we know him as. So they were wonderful. And it was one, reading the diaries was another thing. It just, when playing out and I kind of, I really felt like I sort of fell in love with with him and the character. And it was one of those little moments that really personalised the whole experience and made it feel very important on a personal level as well as thinking about the idea of him and his legacy. I know for myself, the one thing I really sort of learned from the movie, I didn't realize he was as young as he was when he became as famous as he was. Yeah. And to see him grappling with that at that age is really startling. Yeah, yeah. He was, he was, I think, Bernie was 17 when he wrote the lyrics for your song. And Delton would be would have been just 19, I think. It happened to them very, very young. And, you know, that's, you know, it's a story that we see time and time again, you know, especially in this town, you know, of young people kind of losing their way with with such massive levels of success early on. But obviously with his home life and the kind of less than, sort of less than perfect family scenario he was from, I think he, you know, and then you combine that with this incredible rise to success and fame and the introduction of certain chemicals as well and their prevalence at this time, you know. Yeah, it's no wonder that things went a little bit wayward. And now you mentioned the style of the movie mm. and the fact that really the the music is such an integral part of the storytelling itself. I'm wondering what that just read like as a screenplay. Like, did the sort of like the style of the movie make sense when you first read the script? It felt like, it, I, I think what Dexter and I both saw in the script was incredible opportunity, you know, it would I, the script, you know, was always brilliant, and Leah Hall made an incredible job of it. But the opportunity to take the songs and use them in a way that wasn't just jukebox, wasn't just needle dropping them in. It was a, to trying to reimagine the lyrics and embrace the poetry of them in such a way that you can use them for storytelling purposes. So, you know, in the last act of the movie, when Elton makes the decision to take control of his life and go to rehab, he looks at himself in the mirror. And he says, so what do you think? He sings, so what do you think you'll do then? But that will shoot down your plane. And he's sort of asked, saying to himself, are we really going to do this? Are we going to take this step? You know, it's scary. And, you know, equally when the first part of Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, when Bernie sits opposite him in the restaurant, when, you know, in, in the, the real low moment of the film where Elton's almost unrecognisably unpleasant to Bernie, Bernie says, when are you going to come down? When are you going to land? maybe you'll get a replacement there's plenty like me to be found you know it's that's that's one of the things that i'm most proud of in the movie that we've you know taken those lyrics and we've given them a meaning that has enhanced elton's story i love the kind of organic nature of that but also so often in the movie there's a musical number happening and there are emotional beats Mm. happening at the same time and i can't even imagine as a performer was that one of the biggest challenges of this role was having to sort of like be performing in a musical number and still essentially acting at the same time. Yeah, I mean, acting through song is something that I've had bits of experience with at drama school. I did a musical at drama school and growing up when I was doing community theatre in Wales, we did musicals then at my local art centre. The thing I love about it is I think musical theatre, when it's really good, and I think people like Sondheim know this and Jason Robert Brown, you know, a character should sing when they've got no choice but to sing. That it's almost a new, it's a sort of heightened level of expression because the feeling is is so great or, you know, it, it, can't, be, it can't be contained, it can't be kept in. I remember 
when Rock was young. Me and Susie had so much fun. Holding hands and scale mount stones. Had a girl, Chevy, and a place of my own. And I feel that we've, I, I love, I feel like that was very much at the forefront of our minds in Rocketman. Because musical theatre feels frivolous when it's not, when the moment for expression and song isn't really earned. If it's a song about, you know, it, musical theatre is parodied, I think, when it's something frivolous or it's, you know, a song about walking to the shops or, you know, a lovely bunch of coconuts or whatever. When it's a really earned moment and the character is in such despair or such elation that they quite literally start singing in the rain, you know, that's when musical theatre is at its best and that's when it's real legitimate art form. And now, is there some connection between doing big action sequences in something like the Kingsman yeah. pictures and the musical numbers in Rocketman? Are those similar as a performer? I think where they're different, there is, of course, similarities. George Richmond shot this movie and he did Kingsman as, as well. So the more eyed people will see that there's a, a crossover stylistically and I think from a performance perspective it's different because as we've just been saying I think with Kingsman it's all about kineticism and energy and, and, and colour and, and the rhythm of it and of course those things are important in Rocketman but primarily you want it to be affecting and so in my you know it's so for example in Saturday Night's Alright for Fighting which is one shot or certainly looks like one shot. For me as a performer, all I am thinking about is what is the most, what 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 is going to affect an audience in the most pr uh, pronounced way. That scene, Saturday Night's Alright for Fighting. I remember being very confused by it in the script because what concerned me about it was I thought, as you know, referring back to what I was just saying, I didn't really know what the purpose of it was. What, why, what are we revealing about the character here? What is, what is there to learn? I felt like we were in danger of just cramming Saturday Night's Alright for Fighting into the film, if I'm completely honest. What it became, and this is Dexter's genius, a brilliant, brilliant idea is he started to include these groups in it, these factions of the community in London at that time. So there's a sort of, there are these young kids of Caribbean descent and you can feel that scar, the music alters and shifts into a kind of scar rhythm. And then there's a Bangra section and these young, these, these young Indian kids are dancing shortly afterwards. And in fact, I have a, you blink and you miss it, but it's the first 
suggestion about out and sexuality in the film because there's a very beautiful young Indian guy who just brushes his cheek as he walks past him and Elton kind of registers it as a moment. The song became about Elton being this young artist with this incredible passion for his environment and this incredible interest and curiosity about the world around him, which is so true to who Elton is. And using these influences as being charged and galvanised and catalyzed by them until the end of the song where it manifests as this incredible expression back at the piano in the pub. So that Saturday Night's Right for Fighting became about showing who Elton is as an artist and his passion for the world around him. I'm so excited to hear you talk about that number in particular because for me as a viewer, I feel like that was where the movie... It almost was like a statement of intent where you feel the movie is so free that any concerns you might have about this being a somewhat by-the-numbers, you know, kind of biopic are just out the window at that point because that number is so energized and is so free in a way. How concerned were you with whether or not you sounded like Elton as you were like preparing to sing? Was that that a concern? It's funny you should say that because I was just thinking about that as you spoke about the freedom within it. Myself, Dexter, and indeed Elton, we rested on this idea that what we were going to do was create our own reality around Elton. So it's not, I am not doing an impersonation of him. There's elements of things that I do. You know, if you watch me performing your song, you might see my eyebrow raise a little bit. You know, there's little nods of the head to who Elton is, but we wanted to try and create something that felt truly authentically creative. I, I, I want to choose my words carefully, but the, it can feel a little thin, I think, sometimes when something is about mimicry. And what we wanted to do was create our own character around the idea of Elton. And I think that bit of wisdom, which was largely pushed from the great man himself, really uh, facilitated the freedom we found because I wasn't constrained by thinking, oh, if I don't, hit this bit of cadence and say this thing in exactly the way Elton would say it, the scene has no merit or value. The audience, I think, accept you as that character when you're believable as the character. You know, the costume, the makeup does a lot for me. And of course, there's elements of me emulating Elton. And, you know, if you watch the Your Song section of the film, of course I'm trying to sound like him. It's Your Song. I don't want to completely depart from who he is. But what's more important, I think, for us was capturing his spirit, capturing something of who he is as an artist, his vulnerability, his incredible showmanship, his tempestuousness. Those things always felt that they were more integral than holding an interview of Elton up next to an interview of me playing him and it being exactly the same. Because I've I've heard you say a number of times that this is not a biopic and you sort of want to stress that. It kind of is, but it's not, yeah. Well, then what is it? I think it's a, God, I mean, at the risk of sounding really grand, I think it's, it's a, it's a, it's a celebration of a human being. And the fact that it's not a biopic means that we say very, very clearly, very early on that we are not going to be held up or obsessed by the idea of, of exact replication. So you will recognize things. We will emulate things. The costumes are, are evocative of the in the extreme of who Elton is, but if you held them up next to a photo, they're different. Even the video that we recreate at the end of the movie, the YouTube trolls will say, you know, oh, he didn't wear that at this point. But we've really self-consciously not done that. We're creating, we wanted to create a reality of our own, and that goes for the costumes. We've reimagined the music, certainly my performance, but it's all, of course, in homage to 
and inspired by who he is. And I think I'm really glad we did it that way because people do seem to have found it refreshing and something a little different. There are so many wonderful biopics, some of my favourite films. There was a, a wonderful one last year that, you know, of course, Rami got all well-deserved accolades for, but I'm pleased that we did something that just deviated from the rule book a little bit. I felt very creatively satisfied by that. You bring up Bohemian Rhapsody, starring mm. Rami Malek, and which was also kind of finished by Dexter Fletcher, your yes. director. From the very first time that Rocketman screened, your first press conference for the movie at the Cannes Film Festival, practically the first question you got yeah. had to do with comparing yes. the two movies. Were you prepared for that? Have you been surprised by how much people have been wanting to play the two movies off of each other? I'm not surprised because I think especially now in the world we live in of you know the speed that information travels people are always looking for the most succinct soundbite for a headline and that's a good one I think I take a lot of pride from it because I think Rami's extraordinary I think the movie's very very good and I really really enjoyed it and you know the guys we're talking about Freddie and Elton were dear dear friends you know Elton saw him on his deathbed so there's of course comparisons to be made you know the same era both great musicians. I'm also proud of Rocketman for how it's different in some ways. I love the fact that it's a musical. I'm a musical theatre fan when it's done well. I also think that they're intended for... Bohemian Rhapsody is obviously intended for a broader audience than Rocketman is. I'm very, very proud of the fact that we have what I think is quite a beautifully shot love scene in the film, and it's between two men. I'm also really proud of the fact that we've never sought to deify Elton... But that's a lot easier for us because Elton's still around, you know. Whereas with Freddie, the guy is not here to defend himself. So, of course, you want to celebrate in all the glory that he was. So I think it's been a lovely... It's been, frankly, quite an honour to be mentioned in the same breath as Rami in that film. But I'm also proud of how it's different. Also, now for almost the better part of a year, you have quite regularly been performing alongside Elton John. <laughs> yeah, I think people are in danger of getting sick of me doing that. I'm going to take a little break now. <laughs> well, the two of you performed together here in Los Angeles at the the Greek Theater. Yes. Is that something you ever get used to? Do you know? No, frankly, I was still nervous before the Greek. I have to say that it was the most relaxed and comfortable I've felt doing it. I really felt, oh, it's a big claim, but I felt quite at home up there. And I really love it. I really, really love live performance. I haven't been on stage in a play for six and a half years. And I'm scrabbling to find something to do next year because I miss it desperately. It's what I am. I'm a theatre actor. You know, I trained as a theatre actor. I left drama school and I went straight to, I left a little bit early and went to the National Theatre and then I went to the Royal Court. And then someone called Matthew Vaughan came into my life and I haven't treaded the board since. And I miss it because I love being up there. I'm also a passionate music fan. I'd say above and beyond any other thing, you know, music is, it's the first thing I do in the morning and it's how I fall asleep, you know. So I do, I did, that's a very long-winded way of me saying that I did love being up there. I'm going to take a little break from it for a little while now so that people don't get sick of me doing it. But to have this dual experience of playing an icon and probably one of the 10 most recognisable people in the world, but to also become his friend I mean, his kids now wait up for me when I go over to their house, you know, and they feel very relaxed around me. And, you know, I went on holiday with them in the summer and threw his sons around in the pool. You know, it's just, it's been a really weird feeling to have both the depicting of him and creating the movie about his life, but to also 
become a part of his life, which I really do feel like I have. And that stretches to, I was going on stage at the Greek. And, and him in all his wonderfulness, losing his temper because he's gone the wrong way before we go on stage. <laughs> um, I just, I, I love being around him and David there, you know, and, and it's great to be a part of their life. I know, I, I saw Elton said that for him, he feels like your performance in the movie, that you really understood him. Yeah. And for you both personally and professionally, that must be a wonderful thing to hear. Yeah, of course. I mean, it's the best review you can get, really. I always felt that way too. I, you know, everyone, everyone has heard the soundbite that Elton was or has been a diva. I don't believe that people just do bad things. There's always cause and effect. That's the way the universe works. So I was always far more interested in why Elton behaves badly or has behaved badly than him behaving badly. And I think that was always at the forefront of my mind when portraying him was I wanted to humanise that. So the moments in the film where Elton is does behave in a less than perfect fashion, it's always followed by some trauma or a bit of excess or drug use. And I think I understand something of the, you know, the imbalance that's been in his life during the sort of 70s and 80s. And I mean, I would never claim to understand the way his mind works and that bit of creative genius, because I don't think he understands, actually. I think that's the nature of genius. He sits down and it happens. You know, your song he wrote in about half an hour, I think, and just remembered it. And who knows where that God-given talent comes from. But the fact that he feels that I do get him is a real, really lovely bit of validation. And now, if you don't mind, I have to ask, you posted mm. recently to Instagram okay. that the day that you performed at the Greek, you and Elton also sang for Joni Mitchell in her living room. Oh, I can talk about this a lot. <laughs> you will get me go. Joni Mitchell is my hero. Elton knows this. I listen to Joni Mitchell every day. And like a lot of people, I just feel that. I feel like she re just speaks to the core of me. I feel like when I listen to her music, she's talking to me. And I think that's what everyone feels. And that's why she's amazing. Elton knows this passion I have for her and her music. And about a week and a half ago, Elton called me and said, I'm going to take you to see Brandy Carlisle perform Blue for your birthday. I was staggered that when I went, <laughs> Joni was there. And uh, I got to meet her and had a really, really lovely little sort of chat with her. But Brandy and Joni, who have become very, very close, asked me and Elton if the, we would like to go to their jam night the following night. This jam night happens in Joni Mitchell's living room, to which I said, I'll check my diary. <laughs> and we went, and uh, Elton got up to do a song and asked me to do it with him. And I said no. And then... I mentally self-flagellated and said to myself, if you don't get up and sing now, you will regret this when you're Elton's age. So I got up and sang, and we did Tiny Dancer together for Joni Mitchell in her living room. It was one of the best evenings of my life. And Joni sang, and she sang beautifully, and she's amazing. And Brandy sang, and Bonnie Ray sang. Mark, uh, it, it, it was insane. <laughs> It was insane. Brandy just posted a picture on Instagram of myself, Elton John, Bonnie Ray, Joni Mitchell, and Brandy in Joni Mitchell's living room minutes after I sang for her. So, you know, if I do die today, I'm okay. <laughs> and so, I don't know how else to put this, except how are you going to top this? Like, the experience of Rocketman and everything it's done for you, personally and professionally, yeah. wh what, what do you do next? I mean... I don't know, if you figure it out, call my agents. I, I mean, I, I really don't know. I've been so 
lucky in my 20s to have incredible opportunities and make a handful of films that I'm really proud of. I do feel that this movie is the thing that most accurately represents me as a performer and an artist. I feel very, very proud of it. And I, I'm proud of it for its for its humanity and I believe its integrity. And I would like my work moving forward to be characterised by those things. I know that I like playing character parts and I'm happier when I'm doing that. And I want to make music more part of my life. Taryn Edgerton, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's it for this week's show. Thanks to our producer, Paige Heimson, and our audio engineer, Mike Heffner. Subscribe to The Real on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review. You can also visit us at latimes.com forward slash The Real. <laughs>